consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hello from Indiana. Hello from the same time zone. Oh my goodness. This was <laughs> easy to set up. Well, and to the listeners, before I forget, I am so sorry if this sounds like poo. My microphone cord adapter thing, I went to just go plug it in and someone stepped on it or it hurt someone's feelings and got beat up, but it is it's broken. I got to buy a new one. And so I'm not using my good podcast mic. So I log on and I see her scraping it out with a bassoon read. <laughs> well, listen, I have limited resources. I am not at my home. And so I was trying to MacGyver <laughs> and see if I could get it to work. But um... yeah, she had a bassoon read like scraping around the adapter cord. <laughs> Day before yesterday, I realized that my wireless headphones were also broken. And so I'm like going to have to tell Chris, like I'm breaking everything. And I look at my laptop and it's like not clean. I know I need to keep, I just like, I'm not good at keeping on top of my technology. And I just feel like such a mess. And so I was like, no, I can fix it. But I'm definitely just going to have to buy a new one. Sorry. Well, if it makes you feel any better, while Becky was away on vacation and I was in charge of our three dogs, um, I lost all three of them at the same time. So we're winning. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't worry. I got them back. Yes. They I already knew that minutes. if you were dismayed that I had showed no concern. I already knew the story. But <laughs> They left my yard and ran straight to the neighbors and wanted to have a party with their dogs in their backyard. So they were pretty easy to catch this time. <laughs> Your renegade dog pack. <laughs> So, Jackie, you have some pretty excellent news. Would you uh, shed some light on this really cool thing you have coming up in the next couple days? Yes, I was a little cryptic on the last dish, which which feels like honestly four months ago at this point. Um, 
<laughs> you know, when you work at camps, it's like time is both suspended and five times as fast as it normally is. Yeah, and- each day is equivalent to one week. Honestly. Um, But yeah, I have not been able to talk about it because in some many ways it wasn't my news to share, but also um, so my friend and Pulitzer Prize winner composer Raven Chacon composed a piece for me out of his set for Zid Kalasa. It's like this collection of scores and he dedicated each one to a different Native woman artist. And I was the dedicatee to one of them, which is not news that happened in 2019, but he was featured this year at the Whitney Biennial in New York City, which I'm told I can't say New York City because it makes me sound like a tourist, but I am a tourist, so I'm going to say New York City. Have you ever Uh, been? I've never been to New York City before. Um, so his works, cause he kind of, people might be like a composer is featured at the Whitney. He kind of straddles visual art and composition, um, because he does a lot of like sound art and also he works exclusively in graphic scores. So is he a visual artist? Is he a composer? Yes to all, um, purposefully. So among the collections that are being exhibited are these collections of scores from Zitkalasa. And so he is hosting or they're organizing a performance of all 13 scores by the 13 Native women to whom they are dedicated. And in four days, I fly to New York for the first time and perform at the Whitney Museum of American Art in collaboration with Raven Chacon and 12 other phenomenally amazing Native women musicians. Not to call myself phenomenally amazing. They are, but like, you know what I mean? Um, pretty cool. Yeah. We can overdub this with listener. <laughs> she was. <laughs> she is. <laughs> Well, so yeah, I'm so excited. It literally, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but in many ways, it is the most special performance definitely I have ever given, and in many ways, likely will ever give. Um, and that's not to be like, it's all downhill from here, but uh, <laughs> it's like those like 40th birthday cars, it's like, you're over the hill, over the hill, um, <laughs> but rather to like acknowledge how unique of an opportunity this is going to be to share the stage with 14 other women who do what I do, who look like me, who are like me. It just doesn't happen every day. And to do it celebrating um, not only Raven's works, which um, he's so deserving, but also the piece is inspired. Zikala Shaw is, or was rather, a Native activist artist um, in the early 20th century. So she's really one of these like pioneering matriarchs. It's just so like, it's professionally significant. It's personally significant. It's culturally significant. It's really special. And I'm super excited. I like get all like, <laughs> when I think about it. So I hope I will be able to execute my bassooning. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to wear, but yeah by the next time next episode i will have knock on wood done this performance i'm excited 
I'm so excited for you. Are you going to have Chris take pictures the entire time? I believe photography is allowed, in which case, yes. (laughs) I want to see pictures. I want to hear recordings. I want all of the documentation. Well, there are two shows. There's a 4 o'clock and a 7.30, and I'm making him go to both. (laughs) There are very limited comps, and so we got one comp for him at the 4 o'clock show, and I was like, I bought a ticket to the 7.30 for you. Like, I want you there both times. Of course, he's very supportive. But Are you going to wear something different both shows? I don't think so, because they're going to have catering backstage. I think once we're there, they're not going to let us leave, because they're, like, worried about corralling the musicians like <laughs> once they're there don't let them leave until they're done with their obligations <laughs> just keep them don't let them scamper around the city for an hour and get lost yeah no i mean knowing me i really would get lost yeah. like i was like i'm so scared to like get lost it's the biggest city in the nation and chris was like it's literally a grid right so you just like walk one direction until it's time to walk the other direction and then you're where you need to go and I was like I guess but that seems difficult I don't know like (laughs) I'm also very directionally challenged so yeah same girl you and me in a car together is not good it's so good it's not you and I I, although all we would do is be like, whatever the money costs, we'd just get in a cab and be like, take me here. <laughs> I'd be like, are we going the right way? You'd be like, I don't know. I thought you were in the lead. <laughs> cab driver's like, that's four doors down. I said what I said. Take me there. <laughs> oh, so excited for you. That's so special and wonderful and just like once in a lifetime. And I hope that you will write about it and share with us, you know, remember every moment and share with all of us what it was like. I'm excited. And we, I'll be seeing you soon. Yeah. Just a couple of weeks. Two weeks, two weeks, less than two weeks. I think IDRS starts two weeks from when we are taping this. Yeah. Probably about a week and a half when everyone's Mm -hmm hearing it mm-hmm. and we can't wait to see everybody oh my goodness we cannot wait this has been so long in the making just yes. getting everybody together I'm so excited to see everyone's faces who's gonna be there I know not everyone can be there in the double rate community that we're absolutely in love with but I'm sure we'll see some of y'all and if you see us please come up and say hello and uh come to our live show Yes, come to our live show. We're going to be playing Nailed It, which is a spoof on the Netflix show Nailed It, which basically just means we've talked six people into humiliating themselves for public entertainment. (laughs) And that's going to be in addition to everyone trying to play at altitude, a.k.a. humiliating themselves for public (laughs) entertainment. So it's going to be a really fun conference. (laughs) So we've got the live show, which is going to be just an insane amount of fun. Um, so we hope to see you there. And Jackie, you and I are going to perform some of our Double Read Dish Consortium pieces at the conference. Yes. Well, and we should say this episode comes out July 15th, which is the day that all the, every single level gets sent their score. So, Mm -hmm. and actually it's in the middle of my travel. So you might get it early because I think I'll be in the air around the time I would need to (laughs) send the score. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but so everyone who's a member of the consortium should have their pieces in their mailbox right now. And we are going to be playing Mason Bynes's Pong 
and mm-hmm. Connor Cheese Trio. And yeah. And both of them are such cool works. They're so much fun. And just, I think you're all, I think you're going to love them. I think yes. you're really going to love them. Yeah. I think it's four new classics for our mm-hmm. instrumentation. Um, I'm so excited to share these works with everybody. And uh, oh, and just to clarify, the only reason we're not playing all of the pieces because they're all really great is mm-hmm. because of time constraints for you know, for the conference purposes. But um, but yeah, the, all four of them are really fantastic. I think you're going to love them. And uh, yeah, you can get a little taste at the at the conference. Yes. And can we make a pact right now? Like, Mm -hmm. let's not judge how each other's reads sound. If they vibrate, they're good. Like, it's just going to be like, the theme of this conference is cut each other's slack. Yeah. Listen with rose-colored ears. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) Is that COVID? (laughs) Do your ears do red? Yes, red ears, not red nose. Especially the people playing on like day one and two, they don't have very long to figure out their read situation. Like we just need to be like cheering for each other, fist pumping for each other. Come on. If the reads make sound, it's all good. If they don't make sound, you still got up there and did your best. That's great. Yeah. Like, just let us know. Let us write us and be like, I need you to come to my concert. And no matter what happens, you have to like stand up at the end and be like, bravo bravo and we'll do it but you have to come and do the same for our recital <laughs> i also want to plug i'm playing in another recital with my colleague kim woolley it's called women in the salon um and you should come to that too because that's going to be a really great time yes yeah it's two pieces the Granval um trio and the madeline Dring trio well, I think you should both have perms and like your hair in curlers for the salon theme. That's a really fantastic idea. Listeners, I did text Jackie the other day and I said, I am so excited for Colorado hair days because I think that my hair is going to look amazing at altitude. So it's like reads less than or equal to hair. Yes. Great. Okay. We have a plan. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleurie of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Yeah. 
are delighted to welcome to Delivery Dish, Bill McMullen, Professor of Oboe at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Welcome, Bill. Hey, great to be here. <laughs> our first question is always the same. We have our listeners get to know our guests by hearing how they started to play their instrument. So how did you come to the oboe? Oh, my gosh. I think the oboe came to me. Um, <laughs> right. So I, I played flute. My dad was a very, very bad amateur flutist. <laughs> fourth grade, I played flute, you know, and I was I was the worst. I really was the worst. And uh, in the whole band, there were lots of other flutists in the band, you know, in junior high and all. And I just I couldn't stand that. <laughs> so a friend of mine, he was the only oboe player. His name was Steve, Steve Gong. And, uh, you know, he's still, he's in Florida somewhere right now, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, he was the only oboe player. And he said, look, why don't you try that? And I did. And pretty much after I started playing along with him, he quit. <laughs> and so then I was the only oboe player. And I thought this was really kind of cool. All of a sudden, I got all these solos, you know. Bill, so I'm sure a lot of people feel that way, too, right? Bill, did he quit or did you break all his reeds? <laughs> no, no, I never, I never <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. But thing, he quit, and I had, I never kept in touch with him, and and I, I really, really want to try to meet up with him again and <laughs> just say hello. And we say, gotta hey. get the real story from him. Yeah, really. Yeah, no, no he was just being friendly, you know, because somebody else to play, and was that was great. Yeah, so then I just started playing oboe. I mean, you know, I and you know, I got to high school, and I had all these solos, and. We had a we had a really active high school program. You know, they did operettas every year and an operetta every every summer, and you know, a band and orchestra and chorus, music, and I was just nonstop. I loving it. I, I like music, and I was in a a youth orchestra with uh, uh, you may know about David Finkel, who was a who was a cellist, has been in the Emerson Quartet uh, for a long time. He's retired from that now, but um, he got started uh, got a little team orchestra going with his father conducting. And uh, that was in northern New Jersey, where I was, and the Madison. And uh, boy, I, I was like, my, I, you know, looking back on it, I was the luckiest, luckiest person alive. And to be able to get to do so much stuff, you know, and another little community orchestra I was in. So, I mean, I was just like nonstop music. And and the thought of doing anything else but music, you know, I, I never crossed my mind until I started thinking I got to go to college <laughs> And I thought, I need, I need a real career. You know, I need a real job, you know. And uh, what am I going to train for? And so I thought I'd do math. You know, I really liked math. And I thought I'd, so I went to Baldwin Wells College to do, uh, uh, to be a math major. And I didn't really know much about their music program there, Baldwin Wells Conservatory of Music in Ohio, Cleveland area. And I really, really didn't know. And, uh, man, <laughs> I got there and... Uh, they didn't want me to be in the orchestra because, um, you know, there were plenty of bubble players and I wasn't that good yet. You know, I was just uh, raw out of high school. I'd done a lot of stuff, but not, 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 not seriously, really. And so I had a big, you know, come to Jesus moment <laughs> and say, hey, you know, I can't live without music. You know, I really have to do this. I have to do this. And I gave up the math, which wasn't so easy for me anyway. Turned out it was a lot harder than I thought it would be to calculus 101 and I barely survived, you know? So, um, you know, I got into music and well, I, 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, that was that was a long, long answer to hold <laughs> your simple question. How did you get started? Okay. I was go. gonna say I commend you for even trying to be a math major because that yeah. never even <laughs> Yeah, no, no kidding. And I I you know gave up math. I'm forget it. You know, I'm fascinated by all kinds of things about math and algebra and calculus and all that, but no, I don't know nothing about it. <laughs> we get enough of that in read making, right? Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> right, right. That's my truth. Um, so you were inspired to change your major to music. Um, could you tell us about your professional journey and how you got to your position today? Yeah, so I I was at Baldwin Wells College, was extremely lucky because they had a great conservatory and a wonderful teacher who took a great interest in me and gave me a lot of extra time. And um but didn't make reads all that well, you know, like he was, he was good. He was very good. He could be very nice, but very nice player. But I would say I had to do this myself, you know, and that, that was quite good. Uh, at least he didn't just give me a read, you know, and, and play. And I had to make my own reads. And so um, I just was at Baltimore's college and I was in the suburbs of Cleveland. Right. And so I ended up having a few lessons with John Mack as well. He was really nice to take me on. It's just somebody come on a Saturday or something, and and I and I did a couple couple of lessons with him over over the years, and uh, with, with the approval of my teacher there, Dr. Galen Crawl at Baltimore's. And wow, Mac was just you know wow he's you know we all know who Mac was and how he inspired like so many people. So he really got me inspired too about read making as well. And so yeah, I did Baltimore's College. I I got that. Donna, I was still being practical, and I got a music ed degree, a bachelor's in music education. So I thought, well, this is all very good, and I love music, and I love music, but, you know, so I got a teaching job in uh, middle school uh, in Florida, near Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale area, you know, actually it was called Coral Springs, Coral Springs Middle School. And um, it was a nice, nice new program, and they needed a band director. And I thought, great. So I went down there and I started doing that. And I love the kids. You know, the, the kids were just great, wonderfully fun to work with. But it wasn't really what I really, really wanted to do, you know. And the long and short of it is I did that for three years. And the principal and I thought, you know, it's, you know, he said, this is not really what's in your heart, you know. And I, I agreed. You know, I, I like the kids, but, you know, I really wanted to play in symphony and stuff. And so I was very lucky when I first got down there that the Fort Lauderdale Symphony, conducted by Emerson Buckley at the time, who, who was the first conductor to ever work with Pavarotti. Pavarotti, you know, came to the United States eventually, and Emerson Buckley was the one who brought him here. <laughs> so that's a long story. But um, that symphony had an opening for second oboe and English horn. And it was like right when I got down there. And so I auditioned. Here I was a band director, and I auditioned for that, and I got it. So I was second oboe English horn, and doing that. But of course, that had some conflicts now and then with the teaching in the public schools. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you really have to put your heart into being band director and bless, bless every one of the band directors in our country who are dedicated to students. Um, you know, they have to give up a lot of other things they want to do. And I guess I wasn't quite ready to do that, you know, for me. And uh, that's okay, you know. Uh, so I, I said, you know, I, I got to go back to school. And and so I I went up to New, uh, New Jersey where my home was, my parents, and I started taking lessons with Tom Stacy and the New York Phil, and because I, I really really wanted to do English horn a lot, 
And by golly, I got into Juilliard. So I, I did that master's for Juilliard, and then I did my doctorate for, at Juilliard. And then uh, I started looking for teaching jobs at uh, University of Nebraska, Lincoln, opened up a job there in 1986. And I uh, interviewed and came out, and I, I got the job. So, so I've been here since then. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> but I'm very, very lucky here, too, as well, because here at, you know, at UNL, because, you know, you guys came and visited and got to see a little bit of the city. Uh, but we have the um, not only an active quintet, uh, faculty quintet, and not only my own recitals and working with students, but also a, a symphony. At that time when I came, there were two orchestras, the Lincoln Symphony and the Nebraska Chamber Orchestra. And, of course, an hour's drive away is the Omaha Symphony. Um, but that was just extras once in a while I, I play with them. Um, so there are a lot of playing opportunities. And uh, so we, we have the Lincoln Symphony now and that is going great guns you know ed politic our conductor there is has been so helpful in uh getting the community wow getting the community actively engaged in the symphony you know and and it's just a it's a real hoot to see him work with with the community the people and uh so the orchestra is surviving i think we were not so sure about 20 years ago you know and uh it was up and down we had, we had a conductor or two now and then that didn't really want to work as much with the community. You know, great conductors, but you have to have that balance. And uh, so Ed's been a terrific uh, uh, person with the with the uh, community. And and so the numbers are up, you know, and so we're getting more and more people going. It's never a perfect sold-out house every single time. but So that that's in addition to my teaching at the university. And there are a number of us that are doing that number of us wind players and, and string players on the faculty that get to do that. And uh, so with that, and then playing with other colleagues, like in quintet, we're doing a lot of quartets next semester, uh, wind quartets without horn. Um, so that's a new adventure. We're going to try that for a year. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we did get to visit Lincoln. It was phenomenal. It's a, it's a wonderful yeah. university, wonderful school of music. And um, we want to dig into, you know, your work and career more, but um over the course of your career, undoubtedly, you've had the chance to serve on search committees. And many right. of our listeners aspire to not only enter higher ed, but to, you know, work at a R1 large school of music like that where you teach. And so I wonder if you could share kind of some of the things you've learned in the hiring process and some things that you value that make a candidate stand out. Um, yep. Sure. Right. Well, I've been on um, some bassoon search committees. You know, we have Nathan here now, and I was on that committee and a violin committee as well. And um, and there may have been another one, but I can't remember right now. <laughs> um, so the committees, uh, when you look through the file, you're really looking for somebody who is just um, stellar uh, as a player. I, I, I initially I just look and say, wow, you know, what have uh, how well do they play? You know, have they got something to say musically? Um, then have they done the have they done the work they need? Nowadays, you have to have a doctorate at the university. You have to have a DMA. We we don't take anybody. We used to take people who only had a master's. That was like thirty years ago. And now it's always a doctorate. So you got to get a doctorate. And uh, what have you done with the research that you were doing in your doctorate? Um, 
How's that stand out? Because, you know, you're going to do some research and uh, to get your dissertation or document or whatever, and then you're going to probably use some of that research as a focus maybe for a couple of years when you get a teaching job. And uh, how does that show um, a lot of creative activity on the part of the candidate? So um, be a great player. You know, I'm just phenomenally well in tune can play not only great solos and great repertoire, but can play well with other people. <laughs> I mean, after all, this is a uh, collaborative adventure that we have in music. You have to work well with each other, you know, you got to get along, you know, and you got to play in tune and you got to be able to work with, with each other. You have to play well with each other in the sandbox, as they say, you know, and um, so you're looking for that, some sort of collaboration with other people. What, what have you done there? How, how great a player you are, what kind of experiences you've had. So you, um, going back to your journey, uh, you, it seems like you made a conscious choice to go into higher education. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. You were, you know, mm-hmm. second oboe in English horn in Fort Lauderdale, and then you went back to school, studied with an orchestral player. Um, what, what, convinced you that higher ed was the way to go instead of taking auditions for orchestras? Well, I would do a couple auditions, you know, and um, I did get to sub for about 45 to 50 concerts uh, with the New York Philharmonic during the five years that I did my doctorate or four, five, whatever, a couple of years like that. And so I got to work with some phenomenal people, Leonard Bernstein, of course, and uh, Zubin Mate and others, you know, uh, filling in for my teacher, Tom Stacy. Uh, when he wasn't able to make it for something. And sometimes at the last minute, you know, you get a call at like three in the afternoon. Can you make it to the concert tonight at seven thirty? And <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Okay. You get there, you get there um, an hour ahead of time. And the second old player, Jerry Roth would say, here, look at this part. Look at this part. Those are exposed. Uh, you should be okay. Okay. Great. Concert happens. And uh, <laughs> you know, there a few more spots that were pretty exposed too. So there's a couple of stories there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I do a lot of playing, and uh, um, uh, I, I guess I just like working with people so much. I like working with students, golly. I mean, I like working with young students who are excited about playing oboe, and uh, it's just so much fun there. Um, my Both my parents were teachers, okay? So I grew up, I grew up in a teaching environment. Uh, my dad taught English at the college level, and my mom taught second grade. And, you know, those two extremes, I, I don't, don't teach classroom English like that, but, you know, that sort of thing. But I love I love working in a classroom setting. I have to teach music theory here at the university. So um, that's something that actually, it's it's a lot of, it's a whole different ballgame than just teaching a private lesson, you know, or a studio lesson. Um, you know, you're teaching in a classroom, you get about 30 people in there, and some dynamics is, is kind of fun. I, I really enjoy uh you know, the social dynamics of teaching. Um, I, I, I played second album in the in the Fort Lauderdale Symphony for about three or four years. And um, some of the players were, you know, they were fine, fine players, really good people. But I would say some of the people that I worked with there were a bit jaded, you know, like um, at least at the time that I was there. Um, just sort of, uh, you know, I guess always kind of like looking on the sour side of things, but they played well, you know, so when the concert came, it was fun, but I don't know the social dynamics at that time with those people when I was there, 
just didn't get me excited. You know, I thought, I don't know. I don't think I want to do that. I don't want to be hanging around with people who are always kind of complaining. Um, now that obviously was just at that time with those people that I was with. And, you know, those things change from year to year, orchestras and orchestra and players and so on. But I guess that was an influence on me at that time. And I've always wanted, I liked teaching and I, you know, I thought, well, if I can get a teaching job and do some playing, you know, so. It's <laughs> yeah. the best of both worlds. Yeah. I mean, it's the best of both worlds. I mean, we did Beethoven 9 uh, a month and a half ago. and We did a program with Renee Fleming, you know, some Strauss songs and such. And I mean, oh, you know, I mean, that that's good stuff. I mean, well, you all know Beethoven 9. I mean. And they're just, that's something. I've heard of it, yes. <laughs> I mean, you all know, what I mean is you all know about those moments in, in that symphony. There are many, yeah. many symphonies where that's so true, but there are moments in that symphony where it's just, you're just in another world. You know, I mean, there's a reason it's a masterpiece, because it is. Um, so that's one thing, you know, I, I, I find myself doing a lot and I think I would like my students to do that too, is to get get out of their shell, get out of their cells, get away from their own, here I am, I'm a person, and get into the music. You know, and there are moments when I I, I don't want to ever stop doing that. I'm playing this good read and I've got a great solos. And and when there's a repeat and we go back and do it again, you know, scherzo, <laughs> like in the second movement of Beethoven 9, you know, I mean, you have to play some things that are tricky and you got to play them again. And then you got to do it again, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like, that's another world. It's so beautiful. And so that that's what is life. That's life. I really resonate with what you said about the social aspect of teaching being so yeah. fulfilling. Yeah. And I wonder if you could share with us maybe some of your favorite teaching memories, like some aha moments that have <laughs> um, stuck out with, to you oh. in your teaching career. And I'm I'm not sure that um, you know when something uh, I guess it happens a lot in lessons when something works you know or <laughs> you know I had a lesson a couple of weeks ago and it's like uh, oh yeah that what I was telling you to do really works oh okay. <laughs> you know um, you know that's kind of fun I guess when you can joke with a with a oboe student that I'm working with you know and and have fun and get to know them and present personality and more relaxed. Um, it's just so great, you know. I, you know, when you were here for Double Re Day, right? We had mm-hmm. uh, the master classes and we had um, some high school students. And one of them, uh, we had we had several we had, uh, there. Uh, one of them is his name is Ethan, and he's coming uh, next year. And nice. uh, I don't know if you remember, he played the Vaughn Waves and. Uh, uh-huh. You know, there was a moment he was playing the end of the first movement. And so you're talking about moments like, you know, you, you kind of talk about, we'll try this, try this. And then they do it, you know, and they just phrase that phrase just so. I mean, he's not the only one that's ever done this. I'm just saying that's something that comes to mind right right now. Um, and it's like, oh, <laughs> not only is it a great masterpiece piece of music, Vaughn Williams Concerto, but you have a student who really really latched on to something you were trying to say. And I think they realized it too, that there was like something that was, oh, wow, that was kind of special. The way you turn that phrase or a little vibrato there or a little extra, just, you know, dynamic level. And yeah, (laughs) 
I mean, that's just one of many, many situations. Uh, I work with Allie. She's going to she's gonna come here next year, too. She was on the master classes, and she was doing some Pulak, you know, and it just the ethereal beginning of that Pulak, you know, sonata. It just comes out of nowhere. And when, when she did that, it was like, ooh. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess... I've got I got favorite moments every month. <laughs> oh, that's the best. So you were talking about um how higher ed allows you to, you know, cultivate different parts of yourself, the colleague, the teacher, the player. And right. one thing I love about being in higher ed is that it encourages us to be project oriented and kind of um, pursue our interests and um, dig deep. And I would love to hear, you'd mentioned already your affinity for the English horn Mm -hmm. and um, that that was something you were really interested in. And you wrote a book, Soloistic English Horn Literature, 1736 to 1984. Oh, look at it right there. What the heck? I would love to hear, tell us about the book and the concept and the process. We'd love to hear about that project. Well, you know, I was doing a district, I was really doing a lot of English horn for my doctorate. My DMA studying with Tom Stacey, who I adored, you know, as a player, my God. And, um, you know, wow. And um, going to like tons of concerts and just going to the Philharmonic and listening, right? Um, So I came to him one day and I said, where is there a book, you know, that lists all these solos on English horn that I need to learn? And he said, well, there isn't any book. (laughs) You know, I mean, there wasn't. And so I thought, gee, (laughs) maybe I should create a book, you know. Um, he He had had so many works commissioned, you know, and written for him, right? And, um, the advisor that I had in the doctoral program, uh, was Barry Brook. He he taught at Columbia. I believe it was at Columbia. And he came and taught the doctoral students at Juilliard in regards to research. And his big thing was thematic catalogs. And so I thought, well, gee, there's no English horn book. And my advisor, Barry Brook, his big thing is thematic catalogs. And, you know, he would, he would love to see that too. And I thought, I'll do it. So I just started you know, in a very obsessive way on note cards, et cetera, just writing down every piece I could find, right? And, you know, for the purpose of creating recitals, you know, so I could do a whole bunch of recitals and get done with the degree. Um, But also, you know, to come up with some sort of resource so I could play some more pieces in the future and everything. And lo and behold, it, uh, you know, I got, I, I made a dissertation out of it. And uh, then um, Barry Brook had a good friend, Bob Kessler, who's no longer alive, but he he uh, ran the um, publishing company Pendragon Press. And Pendragon Press is a more of a scholarly uh, uh, publishing, uh, music scholarly uh, uh, publishing house. And they had a lot of really fine titles, you know, there's there And so it just happened. He, Barry Brook recommended my dissertation to him and, and Bob Kessler said, yeah, I wish, let's get that going and get it published. So, you know, I was just, like I say, I'm the luckiest person in the world. All of a sudden, I knew they wanted to make out a book out of it. I mean, it wasn't something where I, it's very hard, I think, today. You know, you want to try to make a book out of something. But you've got some great ideas. You know, I didn't try. I just did all the work and research, but then I didn't, you know. 
Now, to be honest, the job at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln requires a lot of oboe. You know, you're teaching oboe every day. And uh, I feel like I have to keep up on that a lot. So the English horn has kind of slipped a little bit. I don't I don't play as much on English horn as I used to. Kind of forgotten some of the dimensions that I use for making music. <laughs> really? You know, I've got the same tools and all of that. So um, it was a lot of fun doing that book, really. It was terrific. Are there any English horn hidden gems that you would like to recommend to our listeners? You know, uh, I mean, in the book itself, see, I stopped in 1984. That was when my dissertation, right? So, I mean, you, you've got, uh, I mean, okay, I'm going to pull out my top 10 list here. <laughs> Don't say anything wrong, you know. I mean, Don is at a concertino, right? I mean, we all know that. it's not a hidden gem. And Hindemith Sonata, uh, Arthur Honegger's Concerto de Camera. I mean, uh, with flute, right? So that's terrific. Uh, uh, Gordon Jacob Rhapsody, the Persichetti Concerto and Persichetti uh, Parable and uh, Strabochevsky Concerto. Those are all great works. And Sibelius Swana Tuanella, those are some of the works that I kind of focused on in like a little essay at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. The thing is, 1984, somebody out there Somebody ought to like do volume two. Yes, listeners take note. Really, really. I mean, there's a need. I mean, because there is so much more out there. I think since 1984, there's been a ton of stuff out there. And I constantly run across something I've never heard of. You know, those works need to be known and they need to be in a volume two <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't have to be a thematic catalog. I like thematic albums. I, I look at, you know, Stravinsky. Well, gee, what does it sound like? You know, there's a theme or two in the book, and that's easy. Um, you know, or Paul Hindemith, what does that sound like? So, you know, you can get an idea. Um, boy, there, there, there's, there's been a lot of good stuff since then. Um, you also mentioned earlier that um, at least your undergraduate teacher didn't focus on reads so much. And um, we always like to hear, you know, get read advice. It is a double read podcast. Um, so can we start off with the nerdy stuff? You know, your setup, what shape do you use? What staples do you use? And then maybe some like general read making advice for us and our listeners. Well, I, I do like to experiment <laughs> and try different things. But right now I've been doing a lot of like, uh, like a Charugi 47.2. Uh, or like a Loray staple, right? And uh, those work pretty well for me. Um, anything two plus, it's a little bit too big. I don't get that. Um, doesn't work too much for my setup. I've been using a Mac Plus Plus shaper tip. Um, and by the way, I'm using Udo Hang equipment. So I have a shaper machine, which I just love. You know, it's like boom, 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 you shape it in two seconds. Uh, so I'm doing a Mac Plus Plus shaper tip from made for that machine. And and that has been very, very stable for me. That's worked really well. Um, I like that a lot. So 47, you got to have a read that crows the sea octave. So that's the thing. John Mack had a lesson. He said, let me hear you crow the read. And so I did. I crowed a sea octave. He said, okay, great. Let's go on something else. Um, but he really, you know, the, the thing is, <laughs> he never taught me how to crow a read sea octave, right, to get a sea octave out of it. And so I don't know how to teach that. As mm. I don't consistent, I I find students have a hard time 
do it. I mean, I'll demonstrate a million times how to do that. And here's what you do. And it's so important to making a good read. Um, but I, I, w- I will say, I, I'd love to have some suggestions. <laughs> how do you teach students to get a, to crow or read? So it's a C octave. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about what we do is that it's this endless mystery. It's never, I mean, we never get there. Well, that isn't there some sort of like mythological story where somebody's reaching for an apple, but he never gets it or something. I can't remember the name of who that is. I don't know, but it it feels very familiar. (laughs) Someone's screaming at their uh, listening device, the answer somewhere. The limit does not exist. <laughs> that is actually one of the most frustrating things about being an oboist or a double replayer or in the music business is you never get there. You never are quote a success, mm-hmm. right? In your own mind, there, there's always more to do, and that's I think really hard for a lot of people, right? Some people, might say infuriating. <laughs> You know, you wanna you wanna say, ah, I I figured it out. But as soon as you figure it out, you got another piece of cane that's a little bit different. Oh God, I know it. I know. (laughs) So uh yeah, all the nerdy stuff. I mean that's what I've been doing. And I I use um I've been using Dan Ross gougers a lot. Um right now I'm also using a gouger from Udo Hang, the one with the cylinder. And that's really worked well. It's it's centered. It's not offset. So that's good. I've been using also in a lady gouger, and uh, that works very well. I use it definitely as a pre-gouger, but then sometimes I go all the way and just use it dry. Um, but so that's stuff, and got to get it to read across the octave. Now, lately, over the summer, well, actually, because of that, Strauss, four last songs we played with uh, Renee Fleming, low. D, D flat, low C, really soft at the very end of one of those movements and soft response. I had to have low notes just pop out, right? So I went to a wider shape. I have a shape designed by Albert Meyer. You can get it through, uh, it's ALMA, A-L-M-A is the abbreviation on the shaper tip that you can get for the shaper machine with Udo Hang. And uh, wow, that, that's that been very, very hard to get it to work just right. But when I do, whoa, like, mm-hmm. um, so I think I have, since it's wider, I have to make a shorter read, mm-hmm. 69 and a half, you know, maybe 69 and three fourths instead of 70. And uh, the little low notes were popping out, so I had no problem. It's just that you can't play extreme high note stuff all day long on a read like that. So yeah, I need a little bit more narrow. The Mac plus plus is for me. Works really well. Um, is there anything other than the octave C crow that you look for as like touchstones in your read making? What are your um, read making parameters? Like what are you? Yeah. The pitch, the intonation is it. Okay. I mean, it really is because you can play a hard read, but if it's in tune, you can get by, you know, I mean, you got to have a C octave. You really do. I mean, yeah, okay, you have to have it respond. It has to be comfortable. It has to be open enough to play the, late, the notes, the low notes you want, and so on. It, it all has to be there. It has to have a great tone and color. So I'm also using an Udo Hang um, 
uh, read a profiler. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, so I, I've got Alex Klein um, tip profile on there. And although he's got several different kinds, I think, but the one I'm using is pretty good. It drops up. And when I've got it set up so that I have the profiler just scrape that tip down, you know, and then then you don't do much more. You know, you do a little bit more on the tip and a little bit in the back and get it to work. And you make it read very quickly. But I've been leaving the center of the tip alone. Like I really, the machine does the center of that tip. And I do the corners and, uh, you know, a little bit of the heart in the back. And sometimes I'll clip the center of the tip just a little bit to get a darker tone. So you're looking for a tone in a read that that you can just let your lips go. You can, you can. You you don't have to have now. This is going to sound awful. You don't have to have an armature. <laughs> now now that's not really what I'm saying. You have to have a good armature, but you don't have to think about your armature all day long while you're playing. You can just sort of get into the music. Right. And when you when you don't have to think about an armature, because the tone color is what you want. It's not too bright, right? It's C octave, so you're not biting the heck out of it to get it in tune, um, and it's you know, responsive. What more do you want? (laughs) Yeah. You're basically looking for something that makes the actual physical playing effortless. That's what you want. That is exactly what you want. You don't want to think about the read. Mm -hmm. Play a concerto. You're out there playing the Mozart concerto. If you're thinking about the read, you're going to mess up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think if you're, you know, playing a solo in an orchestra or playing an etude for your teacher in a lesson, if all you're really thinking about is that read, ugh, it ain't going to go well. Right. You have to be get beyond the read. So we spend all our lives making reads so that we don't have to think about it. Mm. It's kind of weird, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's a think, terrible irony. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> uh, the great reads, the great reads that you've had in your life, you don't think about them when you play. You know, you think about the music, and if you can do that. You're in hog heaven. <laughs> <laughs> really, right? Think about oh, it. Oh, yeah. Could That's we it. hear about the instrument you're currently playing and how uh, it found its way to you? <laughs> well, I guess I've always done Lorraine's, and uh, they just have the best combination for me a response, and uh, of course, the intonation, the tone, and color I wanted. So I'm playing a Lorraine AK. Actually, I have two. And uh, in the winter here, we get some kind of really bad weather. I, I have one at home and I have one at school. And they're very close to each other right now. So they're very similar, although they're not the same. And um, so Loray, AK, and uh, although I've tried other oboes, uh, Tom Hinnaker, uh who's a genius, right, and makes phenomenal gems. I mean, these are like masterpieces, uh, oboes. Um, I was able to have one for uh, for a couple of weeks. I mean, I, I bought it and um, it just, oh, it was, it was a masterpiece. I mean, the thing is, he's a genius, but it, it did not respond for me at that time with the shape I was using and everything. And maybe I should have, oh, well, so I I sent it back and he had someone else buy it, you know, and, and, and so I've tried that. And, you know, I'll be at IGRS this summer. You guys will be there probably, right? Oh yeah. I'm gonna try some elbows. <laughs> oh yeah. So, you know, I I guess I'm looking to get a 
the, the one I have right now are five and seven years old. Mm-hmm. Kind of old. I mean, really, I'm looking for something new. I had a new one a year ago, and uh, I liked it a lot. I got it from Carlos. It was wonderful. And then I it just, it, it didn't, I don't know, it didn't quite suit me at the time. But I had a student buy it, and uh, he's loving it. And it works really well for him. So, and it'll grow, and it'll change, and they'll change with it, too. And so it was a good thing. Can you share with us some favorite memories from a past performance? I think I told you that story when we were had when we had Double Read Day, of uh, and I, I mentioned it the other day uh, or earlier in this podcast where um, I got called as a student. I was a student in New York City, and I got called that afternoon to come and play that evening concert with the Philharmonic on one contemporary piece. Um, <laughs> You know, just the first piece on the program was like an overture, and then I didn't have to do the rest of the concert. And uh, my teacher, Tom Stacy, was sick with a cold, I think, really bad cold, flu or something, and he just, he had gone all rehearsals. <laughs> and maybe one concert, I'm not sure. But, you know, he, he couldn't make the second concert. He was just sick. And so I went in and played. <laughs> and uh, I got there an hour before, you know, and Jerry Roth, wonderful man, Second oval player was there early too, and he said, "Yeah, there's this spot and this spot." So I looked those spots over and made sure I really knew the counting. And I was really careful and great. Okay, Zuhamida comes out. We start playing the piece, and um, or was it that was Colin Davis? And uh, we come out and go through the piece, and we get that first spot, no problem. Second spot, no problem. I'm I'm not lost. I'm okay. I got it. I'm happy with my sound and. I, I'm doing okay. We get to another spot. And it's like, it's just me and the principal flute and the principal viola. And a little like eight measure thing. And it's like, wait a minute. Am I lost? And I thought, no, I'm not. I'm going to just keep barreling on. And <laughs> that was pretty exposed too, you know? So I got done with the concert, got with that performance of that piece. And I leaned over to Jerry and he said, um, yeah. Oh, there's that spot too. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oopsie, thank you. <laughs> um, no, but what was, I think, uh, a good illustration there of, of me just, I think I'm better sometimes sight reading. Just, I don't know what the piece is going to sound like. Really? I don't know it enough, really. I'm just going to dive in and just do it. And just play it. And I think if all my students could do that, if I can do that every time when I play, if I just just dive in and just play the music. You know, don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about, oh, this note is going to come out. Right? This note is going to be in tune. Oh, yeah, work on your reads. Get them in tune and do your best, really. But um, get into the music. You know, really just dive into the music. Think about, about being in the audience. At the same time that you're also on the stage, you know, and you're in the audience listening to you play. And you're thinking, boy, all I really want to do, because we've done this many times, we go listen to our students. All you want to do in the audience is to hear that oboe player or that English horn player, you know, and you just want to hear them play really well and just dive into the music, right? And just totally forget about the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can do that, then yeah, wow, then you're okay. And, and lucky for me, that third spot, I, I, um, 
I just dove into the music. I was sure that was I was not lost, and I was okay. So, <laughs> well, that sounds like it could have been a very embarrassing moment. Yes. So now we want to hear about an actual embarrassing moment or something funny that happened on stage. Uh, make us laugh a little bit with a memory. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you a little story. We were, I was at a summer music camp, uh, Rocky Ridge Music uh, Center. And we I did that for, I don't know, 23 years, summers. You know, great, fun, chamber music a lot, right? And uh, we had to, uh, we had a program um, that faculty played that Sunday afternoon. And it was supposed to be all Norwegian and Swedish and Finnish music, you know, uh, Northern Europe. And we had the Nielsen Quintet ready to go, right? We were going to play the Nielsen Quintet, Danish. Okay, so that would fit into the program. Well, a week before a week before the concert, um, the, the clarinetist uh, couldn't play. And I don't know if it was illness or it was a conflict or concert or something came up, whatever. We had no clarinet <laughs> for the Nielsen Quintet. So that, oh boy, what about this program of uh, Northern European music, right? So we did have a Telemann trio sonata that we could play and whip up pretty quickly that the flutist knew and I knew and, and our keyboard player, harpsichord, my wife, Catherine, she was playing harpsichord. And we, we knew that we could play that and that would have been fine. And we were ready to play that. So we thought, let's just put that on the program, which is not Norwegian, not Swedish. Not- <laughs> finished music right so what we're gonna do on the program anyway we're just gonna do it and we had to come up with a reason like how is can we tie this into the program in any way at all you know so i did some research (laughs) and new grove dictionary music and i made an announcement when we got up to the concert and uh, we obviously had a piece of music that was not from norway not from sweden not from finland i said this is a trio in our trio by uh, Telemann. And the only connection we have is that Telemann's first wife ran away with a Swedish naval officer. Oh! <laughs> uh, you know, and then he... <laughs> so that was our only connection. <laughs> so that's a non-musical thing. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I learned something today and I'm happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm making you laugh musically, but you know, and then we played the program. Everybody loved it. And it was just fun. <laughs> I so, love that. That was our, you know, Norwegian music or Swedish music. That was just the last minute thing. We just had to come up with something, you know. So Oh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's true. If you look it up, look it up in New Grove. <laughs> his wife, his first wife, ran away. Bill, we always love to end with this question. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Find out what you really, really, really want to do. You know, what do you really like in life? What do you really want to do? You want to play the elbow? Then just keep at it. I mean, you know, there. I think the world is, is, is tough. There's a lot of people out there who are good. And you think, oh, I'll never be that good. And I'll never be able to get a job, blah, 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 blah. But you keep at it and you love it. You're going to work extra hard and you're going to be good enough to do it because you're just going to love doing it. And there's a lot of practicing that has to be done all by yourself. You know, I mean, one summer I locked myself in a practice room and did nothing but selling their etudes. 
you know, and, whew, you know, I, I don't want to do that again. I love them, but, you know, that really paid off because I, I don't know. I just loved them. I liked playing them at that time. I really loved them a lot. And I still use. So you, you got to find something you really, really like doing a lot. I like the social aspect of being involved in music, working with other people. Uh, I like making them laugh, you know, having a good time with people. Um, it, it's just, just keep at it. Find, but find out more than that. Find out if that's what you really, really love. And for me, when I went to college and I was a math major, they would not let me in the orchestra because they had too many oboe players, right? So that was the best thing ever because then it made me realize I'm just going to have to not do oboe at all. So I stopped for like seven weeks. Hmm. That's the oboe. And I was driving myself crazy, you know, and I knew I had to play oboe. I just had to figure out some way to do it. Hmm. So... Um. Yeah, I I realized at that moment that's really what I want to do. I don't know if I'm going to make any money on it or what or what I'm going to have. And I've been very lucky, and I have made enough to survive. You know, I'm not making as much as some of my colleagues who were in high school and went on to become engineering majors and CEOs of big companies and stuff like that. Well, I'm sure they're making like eight times as much money as I ever will make ever. But I'm making enough to enjoy what I'm doing. If you can make enough money just to survive and keep doing what you really like to do, then you're then you are a success. Bill, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful way to spend an hour, and we really appreciate you taking the time to oh, talk sure. with us on Double Read Dish. Well, it's been a great pleasure to get to know you guys. It's, it's been a real pleasure. So I look forward to, to seeing you again at, at the IDRS convention this summer. We'll oh yeah. Well, and we'll have something to say about some performance somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, you know the deal. Follow us on social media. Come say hi to us at the conference. Come to our live show. Come to our recital at IDRS. Compliment our hair. Compliment our reads. And tune into the next episode, who will be featuring... Javier Rodriguez, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of Idaho. Jackie, we got to start making these high-altitude reads. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, go make reads. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the real nerd parade in a couple weeks.